how much of our behavior is determined by synapses and neurons in our brain, and how much is free will. My name is Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with my guest, Kevin Davis, for the ABA Journal's Modern Law Library podcast. Kevin just published a book called The Brain Defense, Murder in Manhattan and the Dawn of Neuroscience in America's Courtrooms, in which he attempted to answer, at least partially, that question. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lee. Now, full disclosure to our readers, Kevin is a colleague and friend here at the ABA Journal. He's also an editor, although uh, this book is not published through the ABA. No, this is uh, published through uh, Penguin Press and actually started the book and completed the book before I came to work here at the ABA Journal. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you decided on this topic? This is not your first book, just your latest. How did you decide on this topic to write about? I've covered crime and criminal justice for most of my career as, as a journalist. But this one really sort of happened accidentally and strangely. When the former congresswoman, Gabby Giffords, was um, shot and survived an assassination attempt, I had just wondered how she was going to recover from that injury. And I got interested in brain injuries and brain injury recovery of all things. And as I was researching this, I visited a place in Chicago called the Brain Injury Clubhouse. Yes, a clubhouse. And while interviewing people there, I found that there were a lot of people who had undergone very profound personality changes, and some of them were getting in trouble with the law, including some veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. And I just followed my curiosity and then realized that there was this whole world of law and neuroscience out there that I had never known about before. And uh, just from there, I just hit the ground running and started to investigate this really interesting phenomenon of this intersection of law and neuroscience. Now, I know that the journey between when you first have the idea of what you want to write about and you actually complete the book, your own perception of the issues can change. What was the thing you found most surprising during your research compared to what your concept of it had been previously? I hadn't realized the extent that this was occurring in courtrooms around the country. That, for one, surprised me. I just thought it was sort of a very minor part of what was going on. But the more I dove into this, um, I discovered this place known as the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Law and Neuroscience. And they have researchers and um, lawyers and professors around the country who are examining these very issues that we're talking about. So that was one of the first surprises that I had, how much literature had been written about this. But the thing was, was this was mostly circulated among academics and researchers. And so I thought, how can I translate this really interesting phenomenon into something readable for a broad audience? And so that was my attempt. Now, it's certainly not a new question how we can tell a criminal apart from someone who does not commit crimes and what could be the cause behind it. You and your book start back in ancient Greece where they were trying to answer the same questions but with different methodology. Sure. Do you think that neuroscience can give us answers to that question? Are we not there yet? Do you think we ever will be there yet? It's a very complex question and, and one that I really do try to examine in the brain defense. So when you refer to back uh, the ancient Greeks, they had developed a system in which they believed strongly that it was important to understand the mind of the offender. And from this was born this, the idea of, of an insanity defense, really an early insanity defense. The Greeks recognized, and the Romans, and even some before them, that there were people who were just not of right mind. And they didn't need neuroscience to tell them that they should not necessarily be held 
as accountable as somebody who is um, mentally healthy. So that was really where things sprang. But the insanity defense is not really part of the brain defense. The brain defense is a little bit more subtle than that. It's not so much, uh, insanity defense is very hard to prove, as lawyers know, and it's used so rarely and even more rarely successful. The brain defense is more of an attempt to explain how and why people behave the way they do by understanding the brain. We understand that the prefrontal cortex is where we uh, executive function occurs, where we have our impulse control and certain emotions. So the brain defense is a little bit more on understanding, not necessarily excusing. So it's not quite the same as the insanity defense. You know, it's interesting. In your book, you also mentioned phrenology, which was how people thought that bumps on your skull or spots in the brain could really target in and tell you if someone had a generous nature or a criminal nature. Is modern neuroscience PET scans, are we giving them too much credit just as we gave too much credit to phrenology for being able to precisely pinpoint characteristics or actions? No, I think, I think neuroscience has gone a long way in helping us map the brain, and I think that's pretty well established. What it can't map is specific behavior. So we know that certain areas of the brain are activated during certain emotions, when we're angry, when we're frightened, when we're happy. I think that's pretty well established. But we can't necessarily take the leap that a certain firing of a series of neurons led somebody to strangle his wife, for example. But, and secondly, a person's not wearing a brain scan when they commit a crime. So we don't know. Brain scans, you know, are done under laboratory conditions in which a person is reacting to things. It could be cards and, or photos or something. And what we're seeing is just sort of a general way of how the brain reacts to certain stimuli. So that's where the challenge is, and that's where a lot of the legal challenges are now, where how do you translate science into questions of law? Now, in your book, The Brain Defense, you do follow a lot of different stories, but there is one sort of through line, and it's a case from the 1990s, I believe, which ended up being sort of groundbreaking when you talk about using brain scans in a criminal defense scenario. And that is the case of Herbert Weinstein. Can you tell us a little bit more about Mr. Weinstein? Sure. So when I was researching my book, I kept coming across this case in a lot of legal journals and medical journals. It's sort of a landmark case in the use of law and neuroscience in criminal courts. So Herbert Weinstein was a 65-year-old retired ad salesman who lived on the Upper East Side of Manhattan with his second wife. Weinstein had lived most of his life as an upstanding citizen uh, his first wife had died of cancer. He had two children, just really in an ordinary life, so to speak. Never had done anything violent ever. And when he married his second wife, people thought that they were the perfect couple. They would walk hand in hand down the streets of New York to go to Broadway shows and out to dinner. So they were like their neighbors and friends really envied this relationship. But couples argue and one Evening in January 1991, Herbert Weinstein and his wife got into an argument. And among other things, they were arguing about their grown children and had insulted each other's children. She said uh, her son, uh, she didn't like the job he had and that he was overweight, and he called her, her daughter a brat. And Weinstein, who had been, cal had been calm the whole time, which enraged his wife, uh, Barbara, and she scratched him under the eye. So Weinstein 
uncharacteristically, he went for her throat. And he squeezed and he squeezed and he squeezed until she fell to the floor, lifeless. And he panicked. And he dragged her over to the bedroom window, opened it, and flung her out. And she fell 12 stories to 72nd Street in New York. He thought he would make it look like a suicide in his panic. So the police come and uh, figure things out pretty quickly. And Weinstein confesses. He said, I just lost it. He hires a really good lawyer. His name is Dermot White. He um, was with a small practice in New York. And White had noticed that Weinstein seemed really detached and unemotional after this event had occurred. And he thought, you know, I should, I'm going to send you for some psych tests. And you mentioned, too, because you were able to interview his children, or at least his daughter, that that was characteristic of him throughout his adult life or their experience of him. And everyone talked about how he... It was so even-keeled, and it was one of the things that really puzzled the people in his life. How could a man who has this sort of even-keeled personality suddenly snap? Right. It was so incongruous with his personality, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why his lawyer felt it was important for him to get some type of psychiatric evaluation. So along with that um, evaluation, they sent him for an MRI And when they wheeled him in and the image appeared in the next room, it was stunning. They had seen a orange-sized growth over his left frontal lobe. It turned out to be something called an anacroid cyst. And his lawyer saw that image and thought, aha, I've got my defense now. So thus was born Herbert Weinstein's brain defense. Now, I don't want to ruin the uh, plot of the book, uh, so we won't, we, won't, give away the we won't give away the ending and what happened to Mr. Weinstein. That's for the readers to discover. But what was the fallout from all of a sudden neuroscientists are being called to testify and show brain scans to you know, jury members who have no idea what they're looking at? Some of the neuroscientists that you quote in the book say, you know, even medical students often don't know what they're looking at when they see PET scans or any of this new technology. Sure. So there had been some brain scans used on and off in court in various proceedings um, prior to Weinstein. For example, uh, John Hinckley Jr., when um, he was on trial for assassination attempt on President Reagan, his defense was putting out an insanity defense. And uh, one of the things that they used was a scan um, to indicate he had schizophrenia, a little bit different. It was used to basically support a medical diagnosis. And a few times brain scans had been used in death penalty cases during the mitigation phase of of sentencing. So it was starting to trickle in around the time Weinstein's case um, came about. But afterwards, we began to see it more especially in death penalty cases, where the rules of evidence are a little bit easier to get admitted because it's not the guilt phase. And so during mitigation, attorneys are allowed to present a little bit more evidence and the rules are a little bit softer. So attorneys were beginning to see the value in PET scans and also uh, later on uh, something called fMRI, which is an even higher resolution type of brain scan that shows brain activity. And for our readers, you've probably seen this perhaps on a television show or in a magazine, and these look like little outlines of a skull, and you see areas that appear to be lit up, although you say that that's a misconception of how that works. It is a misconception. One of the things that the prosecutor in the Weinstein case was concerned about 
in prosecutors in subsequent cases is that jurors tend to be wowed by colorful images. If you saw this picture of Weinstein's brain, there's a big black hole. And you would think, and the lawyer said this, uh, the prosecutor, how could a jury not think something is wrong with this guy? So they're very dramatic. The other difficulty is translating science to jurors. Absolutely. Uh, Many of your listeners probably are familiar with the CSI effect in which jurors tend to really believe science. They believe in its power and are willing to accept science is the solution to a lot of problems. So you have that going for you. And the other thing is it's very difficult for jurors to understand a battle of experts. Brain science is very, very complicated. And so during the Weinstein case, for example, they had experts on both sides and they talk about the calibration of the PET scanning machines and, you know, all sorts of things. And it could get very confusing. So that's one of the cautions I think that needs to be out there is the science needs to be made simple to understand, but you also have to understand its complexities, if that makes sense. It does. Now, you, in the course of reporting this book, talked to a number of neuroscientists, and many of them were very conflicted about their potential role in cases like this. Many decided that they would not serve as expert witnesses. They didn't feel it was appropriate. And others thought that they had a duty to come and try and at least explain what they could tell. You talked to a man named James Fallon. And I thought this was particularly interesting when you look at brain scans and what they can and can't tell you. Can you discuss a little bit about what James Fallon found with his own brain scan? So James Fallon is a uh, a renowned neuroscientist. He's out at the University of California, Irvine. And James Fallon was, uh, I believe he was working on some research looking at some brain scans from uh, Alzheimer's patients, but he was also looking at brain scans in a study of psychopaths. And there were certain patterns to what a psychopath's brain looked like in terms of its structure in areas that were not functioning necessarily the same as so-called normal people. Well, Fallon had forgotten or uh, didn't realize that he had his own brain scanned as part of a control group. And when he saw it, and there were no names on these scans, they were just numbered, he realized that he had the brain of a psychopath. And it looked just, and he actually wrote a book about this called The Psychopath Within. And so there goes the theory that uh, everybody who has a brain that looks like a psychopath is a psychopath. And he gave you a really interesting quote, and if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to read it. Here is the passage, and he's talking about the use of neuroscience in criminal trials. Here's where the quote begins. I've looked at all kinds of PET scans, fMRI scans, EEG studies, SPECT, all that stuff, and I'm really into it. Therefore, you might think or guess I'd be really gung-ho about the use of it in court. I'm not. It's not ready for prime time, he says. Most human beings want categorical answers to things. It hurts their heads to think of anything in any sort of fuzzy way. The legal system is the same way. Jurors want categorical answers, guilty or not guilty. But we scientists tend to love fuzzy thinking. It's all what if and maybe. Can you look at a brain and say, this person is a psychopath or a killer? The answer is no. You can't determine whether a person is a categorical anything. So in reporting this, you spoke to so many people whose lives were changed as the result of a head injury of some sort. 
has this changed your own behavior? I know you're the father of a young son with all the research coming out about contact sports. Has it changed your own thinking about even, you know, allowing your son to participate in sports like that or becoming more cautious about always wearing a bike helmet? <laughs> well, ab- absolutely. And it's changed my thinking in, in several ways. One, which was sort of counterintuitive, the idea that I have a little bit more compassion for his misbehavior (laughs) because I understand that he has a developing brain, that we sometimes hold children to the same degree of responsibility that we we think they should have as, as adults. So in that sense, I'm a little bit more understanding of why he can't control himself. But yes, contact sports, I I would not want my child in contact sports having read so much about the football players starting at the high school level and even junior high who suffer from repetitive concussion industries, which can lead to CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the disease that many uh, football players have suffered, um, which you can only diagnose post-mortem. Also, I learned a lot about how combat veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan had mild to traumatic brain injuries and didn't even know it because they had spent months of their tours just in the vicinity of explosions. So, you know, I think when a lot of us think of war, we think, well, you got to be, you know, right near where the bomb goes off. But this repetitive bombing and being near artillery has led to some invisible injuries and problems for vets when they come home, not all of them, but many, who have these invisible injuries and undergo personality changes in addition to suffering from PTSD. So my thinking has changed a lot about how our brains work and how they can malfunction in ways that we might not even have realized. You explore in the book a little bit, but perhaps this is an argument for philosophers, how much do you come away from this book, having researched this book, how much do you think we have free will versus chemical neurons firing and uh, our personalities being dependent on how well our brain stays protected in our skulls? That's the million-dollar question. I mean, I believe more that our minds and our brains are, are intertwined and our personalities are intertwined. I mean, certainly we are physical beings whose every action is dependent on electrical and chemical reactions that occur in our heads. To argue otherwise, I think, would be naive. So I don't think that there are, there are diseases of the brain which we've seen where people can act out of control. People with Tourette syndrome, for example, people with other neurological diseases clearly can have their bodies do things that their brains are not telling them to do. Now, I don't think this is the case generally with people who are going to put on a brain defense in a criminal procedure, but I think those are more of the, at the extremes. You know, I don't lay in bed every night and ponder this question, but I have pondered this question for a number of years, and it may be one best left to philosophers. Well, if our listeners want to make up their own minds, they can pick up your book, The Brain Defense, Murder in Manhattan and the Dawn of Neuroscience in America's Courtrooms by Kevin Davis. And Kevin, I believe that's available in several forms. Uh, It's available right now in hardcover, uh, audiobook, and uh, ebook as well. And if you want to learn more, you can visit kevinadavis.com. I've got some photos up there that uh, don't appear in the book and a little bit more information um, about the brain. And listeners, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate us on iTunes to help us reach more subscribers. And the title again is The Brain Defense, Murder in Manhattan and the Dawn of Neuroscience in America's Courtrooms by Kevin Davis. 
Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.